so one thing I get to talk about today, and it's actually kind of passionate for me and it's on my heart, is our next series. It's called Women of the Advent. Uh, and I got to serve in a way with Aaron to really start researching on this idea. And something really profound that we found in this series is that uh, in this series, we're talking about four women that are included in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And you may think, okay, why are we talking about this? It's because we ran out of ideas for Christmas sermons, and so this is the last one we have. <laughs> Not actually. There's a real significant reason why we are doing this. Uh, and Aaron talked, mentioned this maybe last Sunday or so, that uh, with the Gospel of Matthew and genealogies in ancient Near Eastern literature, particularly Jewish literature, it's very uncommon for women to be listed in genealogies. It wasn't some kind of sexist thing. It was mainly because it's pragmatic. You don't want a whole list of names. Just go down through the line of the man. Uh, but Matthew includes these four women. So it's kind of drawing your eye there. One other significant thing is that Matthew, his gospel was written for Jewish readers. Uh, specifically, he was writing for Jewish readers to believe in Christ, that he was the Messiah. Uh, believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And all four of these women are not Jewish by birth. Uh, they were Gentile women. Uh, so as we go through this sermon series, as we're looking at the advent of Christ, we're going to be looking at the lives of these different women and how they are actually a representation or a type of Christ in some way, but also really are stories of profound uh, suffering. So this may not be the joyful, happy, let's celebrate, you know, baby Jesus type of uh, sermon series, uh, because it really deals with hard issues. The stories are not PG, exactly. Uh, many of them deal with very difficult subjects and suffering, but uh, I think that's a profound thing when we think about the suffering servant who's coming in uh, to our Advent. Um, so, as we are going to be doing that next month, uh, today is our last Sunday in Daniel, and we'll be spending some time on the second Advent of Christ today. So with that being said, I'll go ahead and invite our scripture readers up uh, to go ahead and read our passage in Daniel. Oops. Good morning. This is the word of God. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Amen. Thanks, Renee. Good morning, church family. You guys good? Good to see you. Uh, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, real briefly, before we jump in, number one, I, I know that they moved the Seahawks game to 10 a.m. If anybody says anything about the scores to anyone else, we're just going to shut this whole thing down. So we're just declaring that right now. We'll, we'll just uh, we'll be loving to each other that way. Uh, I also want to say uh, uh, I'm really thankful for Jacob and his involvement uh, working with me these last couple of months. Yeah, we can give it up for Jacob. So he, uh, he's really uh, 
just these last couple months kind of came on during the Daniel series and been really helpful for me. The Daniel series has been challenging. It's a lot of uh, difficult topics and tough subjects to wrestle through, and, and he's served really well. That's, uh, that's a joy. So thanks, brother. Thanks for getting up and doing the welcome, too. Uh, and he mentioned that he's an introvert, so everybody go talk to him after the service, please, okay? <laughs> also thankful for... Uh, uh, Joe's leading worship here today. He didn't mention it, but Joe's mom was playing guitar with us here today, visiting. So that's kind of cool. So, so Joe's mom and then my daughter Mackenzie playing uh, keys. Joe's mom Tracy. So three generations in the worship band today. That's just kind of special. And then last thing is uh, there is a possibility that we'll have uh, some information to share. Next Sunday, a potential, uh, we talked about this at the family gathering, uh, next Sunday about a building situation that may have come up, uh, come up for us. So, uh, and if you're listening to this on the podcast, it will not be on the podcast. You have to be here in the room physically present to hear what the announcement is. So anyways, just a couple quick little updates. But yes, we are finishing up the book of Daniel today, and uh, we're going to look at this idea of kind of how does the story end. In the book of Daniel... We've seen that biblical prophecy, Daniel is kind of looking forward to the end of the exile, but the way that biblical prophecy often works is he starts looking past the end of the exile and starts looking off into a more distant future, and some of the language really just doesn't fit the end of the exile, the end of that period of the history of Israel. It really looks like it's walking us toward the end of the age, some, some further ending, some bigger future ending. And so that's what we're going to kind of look at today. But before we do anything else, will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word that is given to bring encouragement and to bring correction and to build us up as we seek to live lives that honor our Savior Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be present with us now in a special way, in a unique way that would, that would bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds. God, I ask that you would guard my lips, that you would direct my speech, that I would only say that which is truthful and helpful to build us up. And God, would you give each of us uh, teachable, receptive hearts, hearts that more deeply put our trust in you through the ups and the downs of life. And we pray all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus. And everyone said, amen. You know, there's really kind of two main types of stories, a comedy and a tragedy. Uh, and it doesn't have to do, comedy doesn't have to do with laughter necessarily. It has to do with the shape of the story. So a tragedy, and this is kind of antiquity, you know, the ancient Greek literature, they really had this down. But a tragedy, the story arc goes up and up and up. Things get good, 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 good. And then it crashes hard at the end. And a comedy is the exact opposite. Oftentimes things get really bad and really bad and it's, it's tough and it's difficult. And then there's this great reversal and it ends with a happy sort of an ending. A tragedy ends with a funeral. A comedy ends with a wedding. Now, we are not particularly good at tragedy in the stories that our culture produces, right? Jacob and I were talking about this last week, and we were really thinking, like, what movies are there that are like a true tragedy? And the only two that we could come up with were Breaking Bad and King Kong. And that's it. Uh, I'm sure there are others. There's more books that deal with tragedy, but nobody reads books anymore, so that's a tragedy in and of itself. Our culture loves the comedy. We love this, this idea of a happy ending, a wedding, a smile. Everything kind of resolves with a nice, neat, and tidy bow. And for those of you who have started your Hallmark Christmas movie watching early, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you can repent before you take communion a little bit later on. It's fine. We're here for you. 
Now, if you are doing a comedy right, when you, when you take your character down into the hardship before there's the great reversal and the happiness at the end, you really want to put them through figurative and even sometimes literal hell. You make the mess so big, you make the problem so big that the reader or the watcher or the hearer almost can't imagine how are they going to get out of this mess. It's like the third quarter of every Seahawks game. Like, how will this turn? And and you see, the Bible is shaped like a comedy. The Bible is shaped where there's a happy beginning And there's an extremely glorious and joyful ending. And in the middle, boy, is it a lot of ups and downs. It is not this picture of just kind of constant linear progression. It is a huge fall down. And and there are some ups and then downs and ups and downs. And just when you think things are getting better, it goes further down in. And this idea, though, that in the scriptures... We are told and we are guaranteed that those who put their trust in Jesus will be part of a very good and a very glorious ending. Amen? But we got to go through the mess first. We got to go through the mess first. Uh, Have you ever just sat and thought about your own life in the context of the larger world that's going on? I did that this week just a little bit. I, I, I am not the most prone to just reflectiveness and just kind of sitting and thinking. I'm, I'm pretty energetic. I like to go and do things. But God's been really just stirring in my heart lately to, to be more uh, mindful of that practice of just praying and quiet. And I was just reflecting and thinking about the various news stories I read. I saw that there's like the bubonic plague has broken out somewhere in China, I think. I know that U.S. politics is a huge mess right now. We're entering into a very divisive election season and there's impeachment trials or investigations going on right now. And regardless of your political affiliations, you ought to at least be able to say, that's that's not good. And I was thinking about uh, maybe just kind of here locally and and, um, uh, a group of pastors and some friends of mine in the South Puget Sound are grieving this week over a man who's a a preaching pastor of a church who took his own life about two weeks ago. And people, I, I didn't know this person personally, but people that I'm very close with did and are really lost and really hurting and grieving. And I think about some of the meetings we've had recently with some of the leaders in foster care, and they're talking about just the thousands of children that need a home, kids that are sleeping in hotel rooms tonight because they can't find enough foster families to take them in. I was thinking about families in our church, at least three that I know of. There's probably more, but three that I am aware of who are grieving the loss of a family member or a loved one in recent weeks thinking about challenges that my own children are facing at school, my, my oldest in high school, my second oldest in middle school. There's, you know, some of the typical things with friends. I mean, you get, any, anybody tracking with me on this? I'm talking about myself because I'm the one up front here. But you ever just kind of sit and think about, goodness, there's a lot to deal with. How do we get out of this mess? Where is God in the middle of this mess? How can I trust him in the middle of this mess? And you have got to know that when this book of Daniel was written, the people of Israel were asking all those types of questions. They were taken from their home into exile in Babylon, and they're asking, how long is this going to last? And then here at the end of the book, we see that some contingent of people under the rule of Persia, they got to go back home, but it's still not good. And there's all these other hardships that have been prophesied. And we talked about Antiochus last week, and there's just still more mess. Is this ever going to turn out for good? 
Is this ever going to get any better? What's going to happen? Let's do this. Let's go back for a moment to chapter 11, verse 40. We didn't get to expand on those verses last week. I just want to read through chapter 11, verse 40, kind of through the end of chapter 12 to put these verses in front of you, and I want to draw out a few principles. Verse 40, at the time of the end. Now that might be a signal, again, that we're, we're looking beyond something. We're, we're looking beyond just the return to Jerusalem. We're looking beyond just the return or the attacks from Antiochus. We're, we're, we're talking about the time of the end. And the, the text is not 100% clear, but I think maybe it's giving us a clue that we're, we're kind of telescoping our view beyond just this limited period of time. The king of the south shall attack him. We're still talking about this king of the north. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. A lot of people see in that language of overflow the idea of like collateral damage, just wiping out people as they go. He shall come into the glorious land. Friends, where's the glorious land? That'd be Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, widespread death and destruction. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab, where Ruth is from, and the main part of the Ammonites. That was a little teaser for the women of the Advent here coming up in a few weeks. He, this king of the north, shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasuries of gold and silver. He's going to have a lot of economic prosperity. And all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. That's down into the African continent. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. You guys picking up on the theme, even if you don't understand all the specifics? Big mess. Big mess. And he shall pitch his palatial tents. I have a tent. It is not palatial. It's about, well, it's about exactly one grown adult and two young girls. That's about how big it is. Between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. So somewhere in the western part of Israel, he'll pitch his tent, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And I always love how the, <laughs> the victory of God and his people in apocalyptic literature is always just so quick. It's like, death, destruction, death, destruction. He's gone. <laughs> Verse 12, at that time shall arise Michael, who we met recently, the great prince or the great uh, Elohim, this supernatural being who has charge of your people and there shall be a time of trouble as has never been since there was a nation until that time. Now think about that line. There's always been trouble, but this time period is going to have the worst trouble in the history of civilization. But, those are always so, such, good, such a good linking word, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those, or the word there could also be translated as the multitudes, the, this unimaginably huge number of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That is the clearest passage in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament about the future hope of resurrection. There's hints and language scattered throughout the Psalms, scattered throughout the various prophets, but that's the clearest one. 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Does that sound pretty good? But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and and knowledge shall increase. People are going to be overloaded with information and and, and they're going to be seeking things out, but seal it up. Verse five, then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, levitating apparently, how long shall it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Now, we, we've looked at this phrase before, time, times, and half a time. Some try to make it a very specific reference to three and a half years. The problem is, is the numbers are never quite specific enough, and every single attempt to put them into a chronological flowchart, always, every single one falls short in some way. And so we have to understand that these terms are more theological than anything else. Yeah, it's going to be for a time. And then it'll be for some times. It's going to go on longer than you think it should. And then actually, a half a time. It'll, it'll be over pretty quickly after that. And if you're confused, well, good, good news. Daniel, verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. And then, Daniel said, then I said, oh, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? And he said, just go your way, Daniel. Live your life. Do what we're supposed to do, what you're supposed to do. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. In essence, he's saying, you're not going to understand it until the very end. Just go live your life. And then he says, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Is this times, times, and half a time? Ah, mm. You guys, I spent a, a lot, a lot of time looking at the numbers over the last few months. And if people since the time of St. Jerome in the 300s have been confused, I don't feel like I've got delusions of grandeur that I'm going to figure it out, and I would just humbly suggest maybe you either. But here's what we can understand. Go your way till the end. Like, follow the path that God's laid out for you. Be faithful until the end, and you shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. And believe there that the, the angel is telling Daniel, you will die, but at the end of time, you will also rise and take your place. And thus ends the prophecy written down by Daniel. Speaking of this idea of grasping these numbers and wrestling through the hardship here, uh, one of the scholars we've been leaning on, Wendy Witter, who's um, actually just from Bellingham here in Washington State, she writes this. She writes, for apocalyptic authors, the world was so bad that there was no fixing it. And so they comforted 
uh, suffering people with the truth that God would annihilate all evil and reward the righteous. They assured people that God was in control and suffering would not last forever. The purpose of apocalyptic literature was not to map out history. It was to promise, I love this, a clean cosmic slate, which in addition to being a comforting thought is also a really good idea for a band name. The Western world has, generally, had a more difficult time grasping this purpose. Many interpreters have focused on sorting out end times characters and chronologies and then determining how specific symbols might work out in a future horrible time, horrific time. But such times are far removed from the experiences of many of us, and we struggle to grasp the literature's immediate relevance. And she says this, not so for millions of persecuted Christians around the world who pray for relief and rescue, but who know that it will take cataclysmic divine intervention to fix what is wrong in the world. If you've ever sat and thought, my life, this nation, our world is such a huge mess, what could ever be done to fix it? Please know that you're not alone and you probably have barely even scratched the surface, but the point of this text, really the point of the whole book of Daniel is this. God is sovereignly moving human history toward his desired conclusion and outcome. That's the whole point of the book of Daniel. That's the point specifically in Daniel chapter 12. God is taking things somewhere. This story has an end. And he is sovereign and he's in control. And that that word sovereign can trip some people up. We we saw this idea maybe played out back in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar, you remember after Nebuchadnezzar kind of lost his mind for a little bit and was eating grass and all that sort of stuff? And then after the Lord restored him, he says this, he says, I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The idea of God's sovereignty is literally everywhere. Almost every single page of the Bible that God is in control. God is in charge. God is sovereign. Can I get an amen from the church on that? Like God is in control. And then we say, man, sure feels like at times it's not working out so well. And raise your hand if you've ever been tempted to doubt that God is in control. Anybody? I've been there. God, if you're in control, why is this happening? God, if you're sovereign, what, what, do, I, what do I look at? How do I trust? And so I want to point out three things about God's sovereignty, about understanding this concept. I, I would just say, um, like, we can't have a big enough view of God. Many in our culture, the impulse is to shrink God down, to make him relatable to us. And and while God has come close to us in the person and the work of Jesus, the starting point is, look how huge he is. I I watched a a documentary last night, surprise, uh, about the, the planet Mars. Because man, am I a fun person. And I... 
I was like, oh, Avengers Endgame? Nah, documentary on Mars. Let's go. And uh, again, just something about the, the grandness of space. When you even start to just think about, you know, they talk about, you know, light from such and such a star left X number of, you know, trillion years ago or whatever they would say. And I don't, I don't math well. Uh, <laughs> but they, you know, these, the, the, just the vastness of space and the complexity of, of creation. Like, God is so huge. It's, it's hard. We couldn't hardly even over-exaggerate just how big and how sovereign, how powerful God is, okay? But in that, we need to recognize three things. The first one is this. We need to recognize that even in God's sovereignty, there'll be times where it looks like things are out of control. Nowhere in the Bible are we ever promised an easy road. In, in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, There shall be a time of trouble such has never been since there was a nation until that time. Like, that's a big thing. Like, God's in control. God is sovereign. The, the wicked king will meet his untimely demise. But hey, along the way, there's going to be such trouble that you're going to, like, man, has this ever happened in human history before? Actually, if you pay attention to current world politics, there are moments when we could say, like, wow, has this ever happened in the history of humanity before? Like, there are things uh, with the advent of the internet and technology and the way that, that world economics are working. Like, it, it might be easier to say, like, I, I can't remember things being this complicated ever before. Things will appear out of control. And you say, well, that doesn't jive with my view of God's sovereignty because I want to believe in God's sovereignty in such a way that everything is neat and tidy and, uh, you know, looks nice. Anybody tracking with me on that? Wouldn't it be nice if when I say God is sovereign, it meant what the, the, the prosperity type of preachers say, that everything is going to go good for you all the time. You just need to give more. You just need to give more to the van fund, right, Jacob? Yeah. So just give more to the van fund. Everything's going to be good. God will bless you, and everything's just going to be hunky-dory. It's going to be nothing but sunshine, roses, and champagne all the live long day. Unless you don't like champagne, then it's something else. Apple juice, whatever. Here's the thing. That's a particularly Western mentality and approach. We're, we're not particularly good at handling hardship here in the West. And I think it's because of three reasons. The first one is prosperity. We would say things like, we have money and resources. We should be able to fix this. I literally hear politicians literally saying this exact sentence or, or such things. We have money. We've got resources. We can fix everything. The problem is for you and I as Christians who are, are worshipers of the one true God, that is idolatry. That is putting our trust in the God of money instead of in the God of heaven and earth. Now, I think money can help a lot of things, right? I mean, that even says it in, uh, uh, um, uh, not, not Proverbs, the other one that Solomon wrote. Like money, I can't think of the name. Thank you, Ecclesiastes. Thank you, Joshua. Can you stay for the 11 in case I mess that up? Ecclesiastes, like money is, money's the answer for everything, he says. It fixes a lot of problems. Money's a great resource, but an absolutely terrible God. And if the scriptures are true that you become like what you worship, what you most value and what you most prize and treasure, well, they, they, they don't call it cold, hard cash for nothing. So we're not good at suffering because we have prosperity and we think that money should be the answer to everything. We're not good at suffering because we have this mentality of privilege. You know what privilege is? Privilege says something like, this shouldn't happen. I or, or we deserve better. The normal things don't apply to me. Now I'm telling you guys, 
this is, apart from Christ, very much my mentality. I'm a good person. I work hard. I do good things. Well, I know why there's certain rules, or I know why certain, I, you know, I know why those people, I can even remember like in high school, I know why those rules exist for these other high schoolers because they're all idiots, but I'm the smartest of the high schoolers. And, uh, you know, anybody tracking with me on this, or have I just completely outed myself, right? Now, you might never be quite so bold as to say it that bluntly, but the idea of, I deserve better than this. Says who? Says who? There's an assumption that I'm a good person, and it's closely related to this idea of why do bad things happen to good people? Well, okay, are you a good person compared to Hitler? Sure. Larry Nasser, Harvey Weinstein, some of these, you know, big bad guys of our day and our age? Yeah, you're probably a good person compared to them. Have you compared yourself to an infinitely holy and perfect righteous God? Oh, you might not be so good. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous. No, no, not even one. So who are you comparing yourself to? Are you, are you trying to grade yourself on the curve? Like, well, at least I'm not failing like those wicked people, but the standard of God's righteousness is perfection. So it's a very privileged thing to say, man, I, I deserve something different or better than existence in this fallen world. Number three, we're not good at handling hardship because of the idea of progress. In particular, in the West, since the time of the age of the Enlightenment and the age of reason, we have bought into this mentality that everything will just keep getting better and better and better until we have literally ushered in heaven on earth. And again, I'm not exaggerating when I say that the founding fathers of the United States and the group of philosophers in the 16 and 1700s that preceded them were literally saying stuff like this. I asked Jacob to help me find some quotes. Immanuel Kant, he's the, he's the father of what they call transcendental idealism. <laughs> if that doesn't tip the hand of where he thinks things are going, right? He says this. He says, I will, therefore, venture to assume that as the human race is continually advancing in civilization and culture as its natural purpose, so it is continually making progress for the better in relation to the moral end of its existence, and that this progress, although it may be sometimes interrupted, will never entirely be broken off or stopped Every member in the series of generations to which I belong as a man is in fact prompted by his sense of duty so to act in reference to the posterity that they may always become better and the possibility of this must be assumed. Fancy way of saying it's just always going to get better and better. You have to just assume it. Benjamin Franklin, without continual growth and progress, such words as improvement, achievement, and success have no meaning. (laughs) Friends, let me tell you something. If you are in Christ, you are guaranteed the most glorious ending to the story that has ever been seen in the history of the world. Amen? But along the way, you and I are not guaranteed that our individual lives will be shaped like a comedy. There are, in fact, stories that end with martyrdom. But we can trust God even in the hardship. Hardship and suffering does not mean that God is not in control. It means that he has sovereign purposes, some of which we don't fully understand. We might not even understand until the other side of the return of Jesus and his kingdom coming fully to earth. But we can declare with confidence that he is in control. 
The things he said to the prophet Daniel came true. The things he said to the other prophets came true. He delivered the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He sent his son Jesus to live, die, and rise again. Everything he said is true. And that gives us hope in the here and now that he is actually in control even when things don't make sense. Amen? The second thing we need to understand about God's sovereignty is that evil will be dealt with. Evil will be dealt with. Do you see some of these different verses, like in 1145 when it said, he'll come to his end and there will be none to help him. I like that verse. That's the bad guy. He, the bad guy, whether it's Antiochus, a future antichrist, symbolic for evil in general, none will help him. He's going to meet his end. And it talks about in the end when there's this resurrection, some will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. Evil will be dealt with. And it says that there, in, in verse 7, this idea that the, the shattering of the power of the holy people, it will come to an end. The shattering of the power of the holy people will come to an end. It's not going to last forever. Uh, I have an interesting thing that I've, I've been thinking about and, and, and noticing for, well, over a year now. And it has to do with this idea of God judging evil. And I feel like this is going to be very broad brushing, but we've gone through some different pendulum swings in American culture. Obviously, I wasn't alive during the times of World War I and World War II, but during that time, there was a very clear sense of there are bad guys in the world and they need to be dealt with. And we really didn't have much of a problem with calling evil, evil, and, and people uh, saying, we need to deal with evil. Evil must meet its end. We need to have justice. We, we, were, we were people, I mean, even Superman came out of that era, and it's, you know, truth and justice in the American way, right? Like, that's that era. You turn the corner into the mid to late 60s, into the era of the sexual revolution, it's hippies, it's peace, it's love, it's, hey man, like, chill out with all that, like, right and wrong, judgment, rule, like quit being all about the rules and all that. You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you barely remember it, not because you weren't there, but because you were there and you barely remember it. (sighs) But you see this, this idea of, well, we just need to chill out. We need to be more about love. And boy, did that really have an influence on the American church. I've grown up in church pretty much my entire life, and and, and I've been thankful to be part of churches that would sure talk a lot about mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. God's mercy, God's grace. How many of you are thankful for God's mercy and grace? Man, I'm thankful for God's mercy and grace. And it was all about mercy and grace. And and there are some churches where, you know, this this idea of like the seeker-sensitive movement came about in the late 70s into the 80s and 90s, where it's don't talk about hell, don't talk about sin, don't talk about judgment. Let's just focus on the positive side of things. And this old school idea of like justice was now, like the pendulum swung all the way over here to like grace and mercy. I think the zenith of that swing was in it was either 2010 or 2011, an author, a guy who was a pastor at the time named Rob Bell, wrote a book called Love Wins. And some of you remember this book, in which he argued for what would be called universalism. The idea that, that in the end, every single person who has ever lived will be saved. And, and uh, I read it back then and was unconvinced by his arguments. There's many good things in that book, but there's a lot of things that are just not true. And in particular, I see this this pendulum swing of there's no idea of God holding evil accountable. 
Now, that is only eight years ago when that book came out. Are you guys seeing what I'm seeing now in our culture where the pendulum is swinging back over to this idea of justice? I mean, I'm not even just talking about the idea of social justice, although that's there. We're seeing a lot of talk on social media from from younger generations about ways that this language of grace and mercy has been abused. There's a lot of Christian, there's a lot of church kids that grew up in the church. said, man, you talked a lot about grace and mercy, but why are there these abuses, horrific abuses taking place at the hands of religious leaders and pastors? Who's going to hold them accountable? We're seeing that in the conversation around race with various police shootings. We're saying these police officers need to be held accountable. We're seeing this with the, the Me Too movement, where, where in particular men in positions of power have used that power and that authority to do horrific, devastating things to women. The, 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 the Larry Nassers of the world, the, the Olympic gymnastics doctor who, who, who did just unspeakably horrific things, and we're seeing an outcry for justice. We want people to be held accountable. I'm not hearing a lot. There's some from particularly younger generations, but man, we really need to have mercy. We really need to have grace for these people. Maybe, you know, they're abusing because they were abused. We just need to forgive them and let God's grace change them. And this is Christian and non-Christian. I remember seeing a Facebook post from a non-Christian friend of mine. And I don't remember which one of the scandals it was about. I think it might have been about the uh, Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood executive guy. And he, he, was, he had this Facebook post like, man, this guy, that'll lock him in a cage and then I'll torture him day and night and that'll like, you know, burn him with fire and all this stuff. And I wanted to, I didn't. I wanted to comment, oh, you mean like he should go to hell? <laughs> Interesting. A non-Christian guy who claims to be an atheist is advocating for a wicked person go to hell. We've come a long way from 2011 and love wins. And we're, we're, almost like, um, we're almost like manic about it. Do we want mercy or do we want justice? Do we want, do we want people to have grace and forgiveness or do we want people to be held into account? If only there was a way to hold mercy and justice in perfect tension. We're, we, uh, we've, we've been singing a new song recently, this song, Restore Us Again, and it actually comes from Psalm 85, and I was looking at Psalm 85 this week. It's a post-exile psalm. It was written after the time of the exile. It was written in this time period of Daniel, and there's this prayer, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and, and put away your indignation toward us. Like, God, we, we got exiled. We got our discipline. Would you please restore us? Would you please forgive us? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And then in verse 10, the psalmist proposes the solution in his prayer. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Like, faithfulness and righteousness are different language for, like, justice and being faithful and doing the right thing and being upright. And, like, that's the, that's the justice side. But then there's this language of steadfast love or merciful love and, and, and being at peace. And, friends, for us, we see that mercy and justice are held perfectly in tension at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Because on the cross, evil is being judged. We're told that God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That Christ was treated as the, the one who would bear the sin of the world. And when we look at the ugliness of the cross, we are to see the ugliness of sin and that God is not winking at sin. God is not turning a blind eye to sin, but at the same time, he is showing the depths of his mercy because the cross is God, the son, taking it upon himself and offering forgiveness and pardon to all who would call upon his name. Mercy and justice, both of these impulses are held in perfect tension. Not some wishy-washy, well, it's like half mercy and half justice. No, it's like 100% of both are held perfectly in tension at the cross of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, says this, Wonder, ye heavens, be astonished, O earth, that very justice which stood in the sinner's way and prevented his being pardoned has been by the gospel of Christ appeased, by the rich atonement offered upon Calvary. Justice is satisfied. It has put away its sword and has now not a word to say against the pardon of the penitent. Praise God. For any of you who cry out, on the name of Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. There is a cleansing, there is a washing because justice has been dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have not received the grace of God, put your trust in Jesus, repented of your sin and, and given your life to him, then you need to understand that what awaits you is justice. We have to hold on to the idea that God is the one that deals with evil in the ultimate sense. We have to understand that because if we, if we get rid of it, there's some problems that come up. If we minimize God's judgment of evil, we can become inconsistent or hypocritical. You guys remember the, the parable of the unmerciful servant? He was shown mercy, but he, he didn't entrust this other person to the same mercy. And he, he was inconsistent. He was hypocritical. He didn't trust in God being the one to deal with the debts and to deal with the records. If we minimize God's judgment of evil, well, we're going to be tempted to take vengeance into our own hands. Romans says, do not avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Be honest. Any of you ever been tempted to take vengeance into your own hands? We're to entrust it to God. And number three, if we minimize God's dealing with evil, we position ourselves to receive judgment and not mercy. Book of James chapter two says that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, hear me on this. We need to be people who live and act in such a way as to promote justice. We need to be people who live and act in such a way where wrongdoers are held accountable and we don't wink at sin or turn a blind eye to sin. We deal with it. But if we are gospel people, if we are people of the cross, then we also must hold on to the idea that we can't fix it all. And evil will be dealt with either at the cross or at the end of the age in judgment. And so we have to recognize that, that our place is to pray, to love, to work for justice, to desire mercy for others, even those who have hurt us and we entrust judgment 
of evil into God's hands in the ultimate sense. Amen? Last one. God is sovereign. The road might still be rough. We trust that he is going to deal with evil. And number three, we hope for the resurrection that is to come. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And and many of those who sleep, or the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the clearest passage, as I said, in the Old Testament about the resurrection of the dead. And I love that it is no silly picture of being kind of see-through and shimmery, sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Looney Tunes theology. The dust of the earth will rise. All will rise. And we'll stand before God on that final day. And those whose names are found in the book, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, will be ushered in to God's presence forever and ever. And there will be no more suffering. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more racism. No more sexism. No more elections, period, because Jesus will be king forever and ever. Amen. There's a day coming when we're going to be face-to-face with our God in the new heavens and the new earth, shining like the brightness of the sons of God, like the stars in the heaven, and we will enjoy life with him forever and ever. Amen. We cannot let that go. We must be people of the resurrection because how else are we going to endure the hardships that come? Jesus himself said that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus, in in the book of Revelation, he said, I've gone through death. Jordan read that verse for us in our time of singing, that Jesus has gone through death and has come out on the other side, and he's alive forevermore. So we can trust in our resurrected Savior because if Jesus is alive, we too will rise with him. Man, this is good news. Listen, I'm all about um, the here and the now. I'm all about like, let's go out and let's share the gospel. Let's, let's, let's give, you know, people food and water. Let's go talk to homeless people. Let's go pray for the sick. Let's go welcome in foster care. Let's go do all, that, all those good works. But if it's not tied to the future hope of the resurrection, you're gonna run out of steam real quick. So I got a couple of thoughts for you in closing. How do we, how do we respond to this idea of God's sovereignty and, and though there are hardships, he will deal with evil and we will rise with him? Number one, I urge you to share the gospel. Chapter 12, verse three said, those who are wise will turn many to righteousness. Those who get it, those who understand that God's in charge, you gotta start sharing the gospel. I remember when I was a teenager, maybe middle school age, my dad was a pastor and he and I were both introduced to this idea of kind of God's sovereignty or what some people call, you know, reformed theology at the same time. And it was a couple of dudes who had gotten saved at the church my dad was leading. And they said, oh, we learned about this thing called God's sovereignty and predestination. So we don't have to share the gospel anymore because whoever's gonna get saved is just gonna get saved. And my dad and I both vomited at the exact same time. (laughs) And uh, it took a long time to recover because that's my first introduction to the idea of like, you know, doctrines of grace or reformed theology. Like, oh, they had it wrong. (laughs) The more we trust in God's sovereignty, the more we want to actually share the gospel because we believe in a sovereign God who actually has the power to change a human heart. 
So let's share the gospel. Let's be like these people in Daniel. Those who are wise will turn many to righteousness. Number two, let's seek to live pure and holy lives. In chapter 12, 18, it says many, or sorry, 12, 10, shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. Friends, we do not earn our salvation by living good and upright and moral lives. We are saved purely by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? But in response to that, let us activate our will, the will that he has broken free from the bondage of sin. Let's activate that, that will. Let's walk in step with the Spirit to say no to sin and to say yes to godliness. And number three, persevere to the end. Daniel was told the last verse, go your way until the end and you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. And in a minute, as we go to the table to celebrate communion, as we stand together and sing, that is my prayer, that we would persevere to the end. There's a lot of opportunity to turn to the left and the right. There's a lot of opportunity for fear. And may we be people who stand firm in the sovereignty of God and the grace and the mercy and the justice that was revealed in the cross of Jesus. Amen. God, we bring our hearts to you right now. We thank you for this time spent in the book of Daniel. God, I ask and I pray that you would empower us, you would encourage us, you would build us up, that we would remain steadfast even under trial all the way to the time of the end, that we would not give it place to fear or turn to the left or to the right, but we would know our God and we would stand firm. Build us up now as we eat and we drink and help us to worship you with gladness knowing that one day, like our Savior Jesus, we will rise and live forever. Amen. Pastor Jamin. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, and then we're going to pray together. And after that, you can take your elements you should have received at the doorway and partake in the Lord's Supper. From 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Pray with me. Father, we're so thankful that you love each and every one of us, Father. You love us so much that you sent your, your son, Father. So thankful that you're sovereign. You're both sovereign and you're good, and we can cling to that, Father. And I ask, ask, ask for forgiveness, Father, for when, when we don't trust in your sovereignty, we don't trust in your goodness, Father. That when things get out of control or appear out of control, Father, we don't put our faith in you, Father. We repent for, for seek, having a heart of, of privilege or entitlement, Father, when things are hard, that we, that when we don't like the way things are going, Father or we don't trust in you that evil will be dealt with, Father. We ask for your forgiveness of that, Father.
And we're so thankful, Father, that mercy and justice meet at the cross, that your sovereignty is a source of peace for us, Father, that you sent Jesus to the cross just for this very reason, Father, and we're so thankful for that, Father. We love you and your praise you. Amen.